You know, I have a question. This is a serious question. Where do you go with your guilt? Where do you try to resolve that deep sense of shame that you have? You know, I was recently listening to a social commentator, as I often do, and too much probably, and he commented that the common state of the human is guilt. Now, I actually agree and disagree with that assessment, but there's truth to it. All of us carry guilt. All of us carry shame. All of us have sins in our lives, and we ask, what do we do with them? In my experience, we tend to do a number of things with them. First, and this is very common for us, particularly if you live in Littleton, Colorado, you try to deal with them yourself, don't you? And in my experience, when we try to deal with our guilt or our shame on our own, we often do one of two things. First, we try to deal with our guilt through self-mastery, right? How can I carry this? How can I resolve this tension in myself? How do I become a better person so that I no longer have to deal with the guilt that I have inside? However, what does this almost always lead to? You know, in reality, what are we doing when we do that? We are erecting a law. And what does Martin Luther say the very first use of the law is? The law is a mirror that reveals to us that we don't keep it. You see, our attempts at self-mastery normally lead to self-loathing. And how often do we try to deal with our guilt through self-loathing? Through this idea that, well, I can carry my guilt because I feel so terrible about it, that at least I'm doing something with it. I know that I'm awful. I know that I don't match up to my own standards. And so we feel like we do something with our guilt when we beat ourselves up over it. I think I shared this with you, but I'm reading a book right now on medieval pilgrimages. And in many ways, this idea uh, had its roots in, in medieval pietism, that I can do something with my guilt through self-flagellation, through self-hatred. Now, what else do we often do with our guilt? And I see this one more and more in our world today. I see it even in my own life. We often try to take the guilt that we have and put it on somebody else's shoulders. You know, my anger isn't my own issue with anger. My issue with anger is that others don't adequately appreciate me. My spouse doesn't know just how wonderful I am. I've heard this one before. My lust is not my problem. Well, it is maybe my problem, but it's forced upon me by our hypersexualized world. I can't help it because everywhere I turn, sex is forced upon me. So how can you expect me to not have a lustful heart? It's not my own disordered um, emotions and desires. It's the world's disordered emotions and desires. So often what we do is we take our own sense of guilt and we place it upon the shoulders of others. However, what do we know in all of these situations? whether it's self-mastery or self-loathing or uh, getting ourselves completely off the hook by blaming someone else, our guilt still remains. We live in an increasingly guilty society that is unwilling to actually address its own guilt. And this ravages us in our emotions, in our hearts, and in our lives. But we as Christians recognize that the only place where we can send our problems 
the only place where we can send our sins, the only place where we can actually send the devil's work in our lives is the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way to resolve the deep sense of shame and guilt that all of us carry is the cross of Calvary. As we continue in our sermon series through the liturgy, it's called the shape of the liturgy, how the liturgy is shaped and how the liturgy shapes us, we are about to conclude. Next week, Kyle will preach on the sending on Christ the King Sunday, where we remember that Christ is king over all parts of our lives. But this week, I want to look at the second to last part of our liturgical service, what is called the Kenyan blessing. Now, there's a number of new faces here that I don't recognize, so we haven't gotten to this part in our liturgy yet, but all of you who have been here for any length of time know, at the very end of our service, after we've participated in the Eucharist and received that covenant renewal ceremony, we take all of our problems and we send them to the cross of Christ. We take all of our sins and we send them to the cross of Christ. We take all the devil's works and we send them to the cross of Christ. And all of our hopes we set on the risen Christ. This is a proclamation of the central truth that the only place where we can resolve the guilt that we have is in the cross of Jesus Christ. The only place that can swallow up the deep sense of shame and sin that we have is the cross of Calvary. And yet we are given a sure promise that in Christ Jesus we have been forgiven. And so today we are going to get theological because this is a church that believes theology matters. We just gave our kids a catechism. So today we're going to look at two central doctrines. First, we are going to look at the central doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Who has heard of substitutionary atonement? Now, even if you haven't raised your hand, you have heard of substitutionary atonement because we preach about it all of the time. But what it is, is that God can actually rid us of our guilt by a substitute, taking all of our guilt upon himself and atoning, meaning taking the punishment for our sins upon him. And this actually pardons us. But then we're also going to look at a doctrine that is embedded within it and embedded in our resurrection hope, the doctrine of the one and the many. That when God interacts with his people, he interacts with us as individuals. You actually need a personal life with Jesus Christ. And God always collects the many by covenantal heads, ones that represent the many before God. And we see that both in the atonement and in our resurrection hope. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the suffering servant passages in the book of Isaiah. And it reveals something somewhat shocking in the Jewish mind about the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah would be one who bears the grief and the guilt of God's people. Look at this with me. Sure, uh, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we see here is a prophetic vision of the coming Messiah. But the Jewish people thought very, a very different image of the coming Messiah. How did they often think of him? They thought the Messiah would be a Davidic figure, a figure that would defeat the Goliath, whoever that Goliath might be. They looked for a Messiah with the Babylonians. They looked for a Messiah with the Assyrians. And now, or during the time of Christ, they would look for a Messiah to come and liberate them from the Romans. But what is the image of the Messiah that we see here? The image of the one true Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is someone who, who bears the griefs of his people. He carries their sorrow. He is stricken. He is afflicted. He is smitten. He is pierced for his transgressions? No. He is pierced for their transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. While we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to their own way, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, this passage is familiar to many of us. We read it every Good Friday or around that time to celebrate, you know, the, the goodness of Jesus Christ that he carried our sins upon himself. But for a Jew, which is what Christ was, what would this Messiah sound an awful lot like? When they're reading this passage, when they're reading Isaiah in the synagogue, what would they say? Wow, that suffering servant sure sounds familiar. Where do we see someone just like this? It's not a person. It's a goat on the day of atonement. You see, in order to understand the suffering servant, in order to understand the cross of Christ, what we have to do is go all the way back to the day of atonement where God would allow one high priest to come into the temple to offer sacrifices before him to represent all of God's people. But in order for him to go into the temple, what would happen? He would have to offer sacrifices to atone for his own sin for it with a bull. But for the sins of God's people, there would be two goats. One goat would be killed and his blood would cover over the sins of the people. And the other goat would be sent into the wilderness. This sounds an awful lot like exactly what we're seeing in Isaiah 53 and exactly what we see in the cross of Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus 16, 15 through 22. And I promise this is going to make, start to make a lot more sense. Then, uh, verse 15, then he shall kill the goat, this is talking of the high priest, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, meaning the veil of the temple, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement, atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And because their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, 
which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. For no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his people and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times. Seven is a perfect number. And cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So in order for the high priest to go in and represent God's people, he has to atone for their sins by the killing of a, lamb, of a, of a goat. And then it is sprinkled seven times to reveal a perfect infinite amount of cleansing. Now, look what happens next. And this is interesting. You know, often we look at the Old Testament and we just kind of see it as a ton of details that don't seem to matter. All of the details matter in the Old Testament. God, okay, Dostoevsky is the best human writer ever. God's the best writer ever, okay? All of it's foreshadowing, all of it. Look at verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Remember I said there are two goats, one that is killed, one that is alive. And Aaron shall lay, look at this, lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Now, you all know I repeat myself three times all the time. That's actually how the Bible says it. All the iniquities of the people of Israel, all of their transgressions, all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, I want to point out a number of things that are going on here. And then we're going to get to why it really, really, really matters. You see, remember when I was talking about that doctrine of the one and the many? Here we see a number of images of this one and the many. First, we see the high priest, who is the one who enters into the temple representing all of God's people. In fact, you know, I've shared this with you. He has a breastplate on with 12 stones on it to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, of course, we have a far greater high priest. Remember we preached through Hebrews last year? Jesus Christ, the righteous, our great high priest, sits in the eternal uh, holiest of holies at the right hand of God, offering praise and sacrifice for us eternally to our Father in heaven. Well, in the Old Testament, that high priest, which was a far inferior high priest, went in once a year to restore relationship with God. But in order to do that, there were a few other ones that needed to represent the many. First, we see a goat that is killed in order to cover over the sins of God's people. This is what the reformers called the doctrine of propitiation. Can you say propitiation? propitiation. What that means is that our sins actually needed to be paid for. I know that we don't like to think that, but we serve a just God who actually believes that our sins are wreaking havoc upon his good and perfect world. 
And a perfectly holy God cannot stand in the presence of unholiness. But our God is also infinitely loving and kind. So he makes a way for us to come into his presence. And the way that he makes for us to come into his presence, in the Old Testament, it was through what? The killing of this goat. So that his blood would cover over the sins of the people. But it's interesting. There's also another one. See, these goats represent the same thing. There's two, but they're both ones. You get what I'm trying to say. The other goat, look what happens. The hands of the priest are laid upon that poor goat's head. And he, all of a sudden, becomes sin. All of the iniquities, all of the sins of God's people are laid upon his head. And where is he sent? Where is he sent? Where do God's people deserve to be? The wilderness. He is sent out into the wilderness to die alone. A goat's not going to live out there alone, by the way. He's going to die. Now, what does this reveal to us? It reveals to us something very important. That our sins lead to alienation from God and God's people. And yet God in his mercy chose to send a substitute to be alienated for us. But what we also see in this goat is an image of the doctrine of expiation. So you have propitiation, sins are paid for. Expiation means what? Your sins are taken away. With this one goat, all of the sins of Israel are laid upon him and he is sent outside the camp, far away from the presence of God to reveal to Israel, your sins are carried from you. Now, with all of this imagery in mind, let's go back to Isaiah 53 with new eyes. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Remember that goat? We are like the goat and yet the goat is given. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, why am I going into all of these goats and Old Testament prophecies? Because only in this way can we understand the cross of Jesus Christ. From this image, we understand that a far greater gift was given in Jesus than any goat a goat would have to be sacrificed year after year. One of them was going to have to go wander in the wilderness and die year after year. But in the Messiah, once and for all, he was pierced for our sins. He, was, he covered over us by his righteous blood. He went and was alienated on our behalf. With this in mind, we can read 2 Corinthians 5.21 differently. For our sake... He made him to be sin, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, the one who had no unholiness in him, he willingly took our place by taking all of our sins upon himself. Look at Galatians 3.13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What do we see here? How can we enter into the presence of God? How can we be made right with a perfect, holy being? Only if our sins are carried away. And yet so often in our lives, what do we try to do? We try to bear our own sins. We try to carry our own sins away from us, and it never works. All it does is compound them. I'm not saying that discipleship is unimportant. Don't hear me say that. But what I am saying is the only place where you can actually deal with your guilt, the only place where you can actually be made clean, is if you take your hands in faith and lay them upon the head of Jesus Christ. That just as that goat needed to have the priest lay his hands upon his head, and that goat became sin in the eyes of God, so too when we put our faith in Jesus... We are ultimately saying, while he might wear this crown of thorns, he carries a far greater curse. He carries the curse of our sins upon himself and carries them away. You know, it's interesting. Many of you know this, but um, we, uh, we have our roots as an Anglican movement in the church of Rwanda. And therefore, some of our liturgies have uh, particularly uh, African flares to them, shall we say, especially this piece. This is what's called the Kenyan blessing. But most of you don't know the historical background of the Kenyan blessing. Uh, Graham Cole says this, this blessing is based on the ancient litany of the nomadic Turkana ethnic group from the north of Kenya. Its foundation as a curse on their enemies has been transformed into a blessing. Traditionally, the Turkana, with a dramatic sweep of their arms to the west, and I know lots of you are Presbyterian growing up. Let's, come on, fling your hand at the cross. Let's go. With a dramatic sweep of their hand would send all of their problems, all of their difficulties, and works of evil to the Karamajong, a nomadic ethnic group in what is now Uganda. When a group of Turkana who had migrated southward became Christians... Their Kenyan evangelist stressed Jesus' call to love our enemies and suggested that instead of sending those things to the Karamajong, they should send them to the setting sun, though still westward. During the provisional, this was somewhat humorous, during the provincial liturgical conference, theologians from the diocese of the west of Kenya, remember they're still sending them to the west, complained, well, no wonder we are having problems. You are sending them all to us. <laughs> A revision was called for. Since it began as a curse, curses in the New Testament were considered. In Galatians 3.13, Paul, writing about the cross, stated that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And therefore, what we see is no longer are the sins and troubles and evils sent to the other tribe, 
they are sent to the one place where they can actually be resolved, the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, this is profound. One of my favorite philosophers is a man named René Girard. René Girard was a Roman Catholic philosopher slash theologian. He's so smart, he wrote a great book on Dostoevsky, uh, but he taught, his, he taught at Stanford. And he would often make this argument that basically all, uh, all of literature comes down to this idea of mimetic rivalry, that often I see that you have something and you love something, and so I mimic you, I mirror you, and I want the same thing. But then what ends up happening? We end up in rivalry with one another. So in order to resolve that rivalry, what we end up doing is uh, that cursing that we have to each other is we find a scapegoat. We find one that we can all blame for our troubles. And what he teaches is, and I think it's quite interesting, is that Jesus Christ became the ultimate scapegoat to take all of our cursing, all of our discord with one another, all, all of our sin and our shame upon himself. And this is ultimately what we are proclaiming in the Kenyan blessing each week. The only place that can resolve our sense of shame, the only place that can resolve our sense of guilt, the only place that can swallow up all of the curse of sin, that curse that we try to fling on one another, is the cross of Jesus Christ. The only place that can reconcile us to God, the only place that can reconcile us to one another, the only place that can reconcile you to yourself is the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, Christopher Hitchens, uh, the great atheist, social commentator, I don't do the dignity of calling him a philosopher, but he was a social commentator. He had, uh, his greatest struggle with Christianity was that somebody can forgive you, but they can't remove your guilt. You can be forgiven, but you can't have your guilt removed. That was the most absurd thing in his mind about Christianity. And yet, it's because he could not understand that the one who makes the law is the one that can actually remove guilt as well. The reason why Jesus Christ can remove our guilt is because he is God incarnate. He is both the law maker and he is the one that redeems he is both the high priest that brings us into the presence of God, and he is the lamb or goat who was slain on our behalf. He is the one who sets the standards, and therefore he is the one who can proclaim you innocent. And so often in our lives, we refuse to actually believe him. We refuse to actually believe that when our hands are laid upon his head and he carries your sins as far away from you as the east is from the west, and ultimately over and again, what we try to do is we try to grab that guilt back and deal with it ourselves. But the only way that you can be redeemed, the only way that you can actually be free from this sin that plagues you and led into holiness is if you give your sins to God and actually accept his forgiveness, which leads us to the final moment of the Kenyan blessing. And I have three minutes to cover it. We don't only send our sins to the cross. We also set our hopes on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 3 through 5 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
At the beginning, I asked you, what do you do with your guilt? I also want to ask you, where do you put your hope? We also, you know, we struggle trying to control our guilt, take it into our own hands, but we also try to control our hopes. So often we place our hopes in our political party. So often we place our hopes in our bank account or the status of the stock market. We place our hope in our status amongst our friends. This one's really difficult. We place our hope in our children. And yet, what is the only place that can actually hold our hopes? What is the only place that can actually hold us in security? Because ultimately, what do we hope in? That which we are longing for security in. It's the hope of the resurrection. And it's interesting. This image of the one and the many comes back around again. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ's the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Family, because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, he is our guarantee that he will not forget us. That just as the one took upon the many sins, so too the one will carry the many out of their graves into eternal life. Family, where are you putting your hope? Are you putting your hope in the things of this world? I know that that's my temptation. Putting my hope in my own intelligence, my own creativity, my own capacity to figure it out. Ultimately, those hopes will fail us. The only unflinching, undying, unmoving, eternal hope is the hope of our resurrection guaranteed to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you to take a moment and let's invite the Holy Spirit to prepare us for the Kenyan blessing. We are going to have the Kenyan blessing at the end of the service like we always do, but I'd like you to approach it differently. First, I would like you to ask the Spirit to show you, show you what guilt you are trying to carry. And when you sinned, your problems, your sins, and the devil's work to the cross, send that to the cross. What guilt are you trying to resolve in yourself that you need to hand over to Jesus? And second, where are you placing your hope? Where are you grasping for control in this life? And then when we set our hopes on the risen Christ, hand it over to the one place where we can actually set our hopes on our risen Lord. Let's take a few moments and ask the Spirit to reveal that to us.